Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. Kiko Tarumoto, I am Nathan Cole, and we are Stand Partners for Life. But today I'm here instead with Nate Farrington, a good friend ever since I moved to LA five years ago. So uh, Nate, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for being with me today. It's not the royal uh, we here. Um, Nate is a bass player extraordinaire, and although we went to the same school, the Curtis Institute, we weren't there at the same time. We met only five years ago when I moved out here to L.A. Yeah, but I felt I'd known you since I was in school. You were, you know, the Nate before me there at Curtis that everyone talked about. So it was it was interesting to connect, you know, to put a face with the name, That's with right. my name. Back then, everybody, it seemed like all the adults called me Nate and everybody my age called me Nathan. So I, I sort of hedged my bets. I go by Nathan, but my, my site is natesviolin.com. So there's the confusion. But you, you're always Nate. I am. Now, um, you play bass, and you play so much of the time in symphony orchestras as I do, and a lot of that time with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, but you're a traveling musician. You, you live in L.A., but you're really all over the place. Uh, tell me a little about how that works. In the past five years, I've played with Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Columbus, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, Cleveland. Um, I've done concerts in the past with Boston and National and Baltimore. Uh, and so it's it's been a pretty interesting ride for me. The Cincinnati Symphony as well. And I was slated to play with the San Diego Symphony, but uh, but wasn't able to make it that week. It's, it's an incredible variety of music making that happens all over the country. And, you know, the basic skill set is always the same, the same thing we've been doing since we were little children. But... It's interesting to go from spot to spot and see what drives each group differently and and how they make their sound the way they do. It it all becomes evident pretty quickly once you start playing with a new group. Now, me, I, I don't play with any of those orchestras that you named. I'm just no, I with... think it's an extremely rare... I'm not sure I've ever met anybody who's done as much bouncing around as I have. It's just been... It's been by choice on some level. I haven't aggressively sought a position. I've taken a few auditions, a few really huge auditions, and done... Um, done very well in them, but they led to opportunities to sub with the orchestras. And I think most of the time people come out of school, look for a job. If there are openings in, in groups of a certain caliber that they're interested in, they go after them. And generally you're happy to find a job and, and take it. And, and the goal would eventually be to sort of skip to the next, uh, rung on the ladder that you have in mind, uh, throughout your career until you are, are, pleased with where you are until you aren't winning auditions anymore. It just depends. You know, lots can happen in in that time as you're sort of scaling the orchestral ladder. But my experience has just been a little different. And and it's it's been great to see tremendous music making done differently all around the country. Right. So since you are here in LA, and thank goodness you are, else we might not have met for quite a while longer, uh, why L.A.? I, I have a feeling I know the answer, but let's oh, tell our that, listeners. Oh, that's an easy question, actually. Uh, L.A. called. <laughs> I was finishing up school. 
uh, and living in Philadelphia. And I had, I had this longtime girlfriend there and she and I had just broken up and I was running around the East coast like crazy. And, and the LA Phil called out of the blue and, and said, we have somebody who's going to be out for a year. If we guaranteed you a year of work, would you consider moving to the West coast? And, you know, all those things conspired, you know, I needed a fresh start. <laughs> it was certainly easy to run away to Los Angeles. I also had a little sister who by total happenstance was finishing up her acting school at USC. So both of us had somehow made our way out to the West Coast from Ohio. And um, it was nice to reunite with her. It, it was a great situation that just sort of fell into my lap. Cool. And that was five years ago. So you, you finished up that year. That makes that four years ago. That's right. But you're still here. No, I am. I've, I played actually pretty much full-time with the group for three seasons. Uh, but there are two cities in the United States right now where big creative business takes place. And Los Angeles and New York couldn't be more different in terms of the energy that encapsulates each. But each is able to sort of foster large creativity on a big scale. I mean, the movie business is still, it's high art in certain instances. It's also terribly profitable in certain instances. And I think it's amazing that it can happen and take place in a place like this without the amplitude of a place like New York, you know, that I feel like generally you fit into one or the other more easily. Um, if you're a person and, and my energy, I don't need any extra amplitude in my, in my life. I do fine, <laughs> do fine alone. Well, and in fact, one of the first creative experiences we had together, um, was part of that entertainment, uh, media industry where you came up to me on stage, you were playing with the LA Phil and you came up to me and said, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. The personnel manager of the LA Phil knocked on the bass door and said, "Hey, Nate, just got a call from from a casting agency. They need a ba- bass player for a Honda commercial. Um, do you want to throw your name in the ring?" And so I went and auditioned. And the audition was amazing, man. It was an interesting experience where uh, got into the room. I, as a as a classical musician, you prepare for auditions so specifically. It's this process mm-hmm. where you just delve into to minutia on a scale that maybe I don't do at any other point in my life. You know, you're looking at the little dots and articulations and nuances on a on an incredibly microscopic level. And so I heard the word audition and I went home and I immediately prepared this showpiece. I was going to smoke this audition. I was going to come <laughs> in there like with this showpiece and show those directors what a bass player could do. I had this special, this special like bluegrassy thing that was like flying over all over the bass. And so I, I dressed up in my tails because they wanted an orchestral player. So I like showed up in costume with my bass and got rolling at the audition, sat and waited for a while and and was like mentally preparing to really go in and deliver this thing. And all of a sudden, like some some like 35 year old dude in like a, you know, designer jeans. And I think he had on like a, like an Irish bowler. <laughs> shows up and he grabs like six of us he's like i'll take you 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 and you and it was me a violinist a cellist some dude that had brought his timpani to the audition his drums with him and he puts us all in a room and i'm like okay man when do i when you want to hear my stuff i'm ready to rock so just to be clear they weren't casting only a bass player no they were right casting then. this makeshift orchestra and i guess bass was just one of the instruments but you know you certainly don't have that information when you're going into a an audition in, in Hollywood that way. Most of the time, you don't even know what company you're dealing with. But uh, isn't it true that often you'll have very specific directives about what the what It's the interesting. Character... It's, like how, it's like, how can they 
encapsulate the world that they want to fill for the audition without giving any real details about anything that's going on inside the audition because they want to keep their stories and their stars sort of to themselves. So it's a very interesting process where you kind of, at a certain point, you have to make a decision. You have to decide, I'm going to embody an orchestral bass player today or I'm going to embody a country bass player. You know, you, you have to show up with a perspective and oftentimes your perspective may not have anything really to do with the specific thing they want in the end, but part of the job of taking auditions in that, you know, in the acting world here in LA is making a decision. And isn't um, that so interesting that the, it's just total opposite ends of the spectrum, the, all the specifics that you know going into a, an orchestral audition versus almost nothing here. And two, you know, if they're, if they're casting tall, tall dark, and be, handsome. Right. Man. There are going to be a, a fair number of folks showing up that might fit that loose description, but orchestral bass player, that, that already narrows it down somewhat, right? So you, you've got an advantage there. I did. Well, I thought I did. But when he put me in the room with those four people, he looked across the room and he says, okay, guys, here's what I need from you. Are you ready? What I need, I'm going to give you the sign. And he points it at, at one of the people and he's like, when I give you that sign, I need intensity. And I was like, what, what do you... What are you talking about? I brought this piece to play. I'm, I'm, I thought it, this was an audition, you know? And, and <laughs> oh, he's like, was. nope, 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 nope. And then I'm going to give you a second sign. When I give you the second sign, I need more intensity. <laughs> and <laughs> this is sounding like that uh, Lost in Translation it movie was with a Bill little, Murray. It totally was, you know, Suntory time. But, but you know, we couldn't, I, I, at this point, I was lost. I mean, I was standing there staring at him like, when do I perform for you the specific piece that I prepared for this moment, <laughs> which has been every audition I've ever taken. This I mean, is my you, audition. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's like, this is my moment to shine. You've got to give me an opportunity. And it's, that's the big thing about orchestral auditions is that you plan the way that you walk into that space. You, you plan the way that you sit down and what you're going to be doing. I mean, it's all totally planned and, and that has nothing to do with these auditions here. So he points at us and I'm like, what the heck do you mean intensity? Where's my music stand? What, what am I supposed to play for you? But the violinist who was like a singer, songwriter, actress, model, chef, whatever they need from her <laughs> that day, you know, whose parents had paid her violin lessons when she was young, um, had the violin like tucked away in her you know, closet. She, she dug it out and showed up to the audition because her manager sent her. And she's like, I can do intense. And she started sawing away on the violin and she just, she was playing. And I was like, well, I guess I can thump along with her and mm -hmm. do it. And so I thumped along and all of a sudden you look across and there's the director and he gives the second cue. It's like more intensity. And she goes berserk. <laughs> you know, and at this point the, the timpanist is smashing his drums and I'm, I'm really wailing. And, and that violinist, I don't even, I don't know what she was doing, but it was enough to where, <laughs> it was enough to where we got the gig. And I was laughing coming away because they don't tell you, they don't, they didn't tell us on the spot that we got it. But I mean, it was such a surreal experience. This notion that like they called the day before I showed up that day, I thumped away on my bass while this girl was going berserk next to me. And this guy who had brought his timpani drums, I mean, just to transport a timpani to an audition is mm -hmm. insane. You know, everybody went nuts together and they said, thanks, we'll let you know goodbye. And you're like walking out and it's, you know, who knows? But you, uh. In oh, I booked end. a gig, Nathan. Oh, yeah, that's right. I delivered. When he asked for more intense, he got what he wanted. Right, and, and you got the part. We got the part. So day one, announcement of audition. Day two, audition. Day three, announcement that you got the gig, and they say, be here tomorrow at 7 a.m. for filming. We're going to knock this thing out tomorrow. And you're like, well, what do you mean tomorrow? I, 
Uh, luckily, I, I didn't have any. Yeah, <laughs> luckily, I didn't have any services with the orchestra, um, and it worked out fine. But late on day three, they called me, and I got a call from the production manager, and the production manager said, um, "We're a little concerned that the director doesn't speak musician, <laughs> and we just want to make sure that there's an interface between the director and his needs and all of you with instruments on the stage." So, we were hoping that you might know somebody who would be interested in coming tomorrow, uh, and who could sort of act as an intermediary between the director and, and you musicians. And I was like, um, well, I certainly know some people. I mean, some very accomplished musicians at the Phil. What would you pay them? And what are the what are the hours? She's like, well, we would need them to be there around 7 a.m. And we could guarantee release by 7 p.m. And we're willing to pay $150 cash and a signed picture of Patrick Warburton, who was the... <laughs> Putty from Seinfeld. <laughs> exactly. So Putty from Seinfeld was going to sign. He was the star of the commercial, and we were the backup band. Right. So they to speak. weren't just giving out random pictures of. Uh... No, no. He was going to be there, and we were the backup band. So I was like, I was like, you expect me to take that offer of one hundred and fifty dollars cash, twelve hours of work, and Putty's picture to the accomplished musicians at the Los Angeles Philharmonic who have, you know, I said, I it's going to be tough for me to find someone, but then. Nathan popped into my head. He accepted immediately with enthusiasm. He was like, I will do it. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 I think putty was the magic, the magic word there. Well, Akiko and I, we, we've kept the tally now of how many Seinfeld characters and Seinfeld extras we've met and run into over the years. So did you know she played a foosball with Kenny Banya? <laughs> did, did not know that. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you, how many, do you know how many you guys have met? I think at this point it's been... Uh, six or seven, because actually at when we, uh, spoiler, you know, to skip forward a little bit in the story at the same shoot for the, the Honda commercial that we're talking about, I met another one um, yeah. because they were filming a holiday commercial at, a, at the soundstage next door. So this person was playing an elf mm -hmm. and she had been in Seinfeld and uh, Wow, yeah, a couple of them I've run into in Pasadena here, so it's uh, that, that's oh, they're a little... around. Yeah, you see these people <laughs> from time to time. It's just the way it goes. But Putty, I mean, that that's more of a major. Oh, he character. was he was huge, yeah. and it was so cool to see him do his thing. We were just one of twenty Christmas spots he was doing for Honda that season, and so it was. They were pumping these things out, and we got there to do the Christmas show, uh, the the Christmas commercial, and and the director comes by and says, "Great, I'm so glad you all made it." maybe you guys could come up with a few different plans for things you'd like to play. And again, this is so foreign, Nathan, to what we do as classical musicians. As classical musicians, you come into orchestra, you take your seat, you open the folder, you've known exactly what's going to be in the folder for right. forever. And you've played most of it many times, but the notion that we were just going to show up for this, I mean, they were spending millions, literally millions of dollars to shoot these Honda commercials. Yeah. Every time we stopped, the, the, the buffing crew like ran in and spit shined the exactly shined the, the honda that was on the stage back behind us you know but now at this point in the story i'm here yes nathan this, this nathan the... accepted we got up at 7 a.m made our way down to to long long beach i think it was in right. long beach and um and got to work and so the the interesting thing about those shoots is that work is sit around and wait oh yeah i i've never sat around as much as that and it was fascinating though i mean you and i share a love of uh all the equipment the the gear that uh, 
I mean, and it's fantastic. Oh, it's, it's amazing to see what goes into those productions. It's it's incredible. Right. As you said, I mean, we were standing there. So now my role, I think they called me the symphony conductor. It was a symphony of how many? Six or seven? Yeah, six people. Players, a ragtag uh, assortment of instruments here. And I was the symphony conductor. And so we were standing there and here comes the well, director. Well, you quickly be- went from symphony conductor to symphony composer, essentially, because because the director walks up and says, I need three different ideas of things you guys could play. And... Yeah. I mean, what are you supposed to do for that? So we, Nathan and I stood and talked about it for a minute and then Nathan assigned parts essentially. And we, we just built some chords. we sort of took some basic pitches and assigned them to people, um, and, and made sort of an order out of who was going to play when and got them ready to go. So the next time the director came around, we pitched our, pitched our three ideas and he was like, uh, that one. And you were, I was nervous. I don't know about you. I was too, because you know, they gave us maybe 15 minutes Totally. And you, you, all we needed was four seconds of music. Yeah. And then we were like, okay, well, I, I think that's going to work. And then What's we got to wait. What's funny about it, though, Nathan, is that is that because of the lack of information, again, in this in these scenarios, there we're feeling that we're feeling the pressure. But the truth is, is that is that quickly we discovered once we got out on stage and actually did the commercial that we were pantomiming to the sound that they were going to build into the commercial later. So even though they asked the LA Philharmonic to send its bass player, I was no more qualified to be in that commercial. None of my skills were put to use in that commercial differently than somebody else who owned a bass. I mean, that singer, songwriter, model, actress, chef was, was absolutely capable of being there with her violin and completing the task and looking fantastic. She looked a lot better than I did for sure. Uh. Um, so it was an interesting thing, but we really weren't under any pressure at all, but we didn't know that. And certainly as our first time in these situations, and and as performers, I think for a living, you you want to deliver something on a on a high level, and so I definitely was concerned about what we were going to do. Right, and I I know you just like uh, Kiko and I are often horrified looking at uh, commercials and movies and seeing what they allow to come up on screen. And and for me, it's not you know oh I I can't believe that guy's not using any vibrato or I can't believe the way he's holding the bow. But it, to, to me, it's just. It's a look. Either someone looks like they're playing an instrument or, or they don't. Yeah. And it always amazes me that they wouldn't just get someone who really plays an instrument. And in this case, they did. I mean, it's all... such an interesting thing, Nathan, because I actually, my one other commercial experience, the thing that we should, should preface this with is that these commercials can be life-changing amounts of money. Um, it's, I had no notion when I went and took that audition. I mean, I was, I was just going to play my piece and get out of there. But I mean, it's, it can be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, particularly if you get into a commercial that's renewed or I think one of the most right. lucrative commercials of all times is that is that little boy who comes in from the cold as the snowman and eats some Campbell's soup uh and I was the snowman just about that commercial. Did you that's that's a terribly famous commercial because that guy, that commercial is renewed every year. Uh, he's paid for the renewal. He's paid residuals again for how long it runs. He's paid every time that commercial shows up again, there's like a whole, the engine starts over again. And we're talking about, I guarantee you that that commercial has provided over a million dollars for that, for that kid and, and continues to do so. It's a great commercial, but I didn't understand what we were talking about in terms of the money of this situation. But my other commercial experience was, um, for an Apple commercial. 
And they didn't tell us what it was going to be. They just said high-end, high-end electronic company. And so we showed up and I had a great audition. And the, the director of the commercial, as I was walking out, was like, I think we'll be in touch soon. You know, I, I was <laughs> nice, feeling pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I was like, okay. And I get the call the next day. We'd like to put you on strong availability, which means please block off the day for us. You know, we're going to do that. And we'll give you our confirmation call later in the afternoon. Never got the confirmation call and found out almost a year later that what had happened is they'd accidentally double booked the director's brother to be in the commercial as a conductor and they hired a conductor and they'd made those calls and those calls had gone out. And so they had double booked the conductor position and base was last on the list. And so they're getting to the end and they've already hired the guy's brother and they've got this conductor standing there. So they just decide, screw it. We'll rent a base shove it in one of those two guys' hands and he can stand back there and be bass player number two. Uh, I see. And so I lost, I mean, I felt I, I felt worse during breakups than I did when they didn't call me back a second time because at that <laughs> point I'd learned what those commercials can mean and how much money they can be worth. And, and I mean, when they called and told me I was on strong availability, I mean, I was counting. That money was like, was totally spent, you know, <laughs> on some amazing new things. But on it, some Apple products. Oh, totally, absolutely. But it never came. And, you know, it's just an interesting it's just an interesting art form there where you're receiving a call on a Tuesday, you're auditioning on a Wednesday, you're booked on a Thursday, you're pumping it out on a Friday, and it can pay for the next three or four or five or six months or years of your life, depending upon how it all goes down. And you don't really know until well after the fact what you're dealing with and what's going on. But all the little parts that move and, and the way that they're moving and shaking, you know, that call that I got, which was, please bring somebody who can speak musician to musicians actually ended up being a really smart call that they made. They got what they needed from you and you directed that commercial largely. That's right. I was the, uh, I don't even know if they have a word for an off camera. <laughs> they panned across all of the musicians. Patrick Warburton was walking across the stage and as he walked across the stage, he'd pass a musician one at a time. And Nathan walked behind the camera with Patrick Warburton, cueing every musician at the perfect moment when they were supposed to start moving and playing their note as Patrick did his speech. And we did this over and over and over again. And the director, who'd made a great decision in calling somebody like Nathan into the situation, was just sitting back there with his arms crossed, like nodding his head, like this is what I'm paid to do. And the <laughs> truth is, is he he had... He'd nailed it, and it worked out great for them. And he, you experience. know, then he got to focus on directing the 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 talent, the the real talent <laughs> in the situation. Absolutely, you know, Patrick it, Warburton had a lot of lines, and, and that was interesting that. for for me to watch, as I know it was for you too. I, you know, he was critiquing gestures um, totally. and delivery, and because they've got a product to sell. And um, now I don't know if you remember. For me, the absolute funniest moment of the whole day was. Um, Part of that set was a giant hourglass with, you know, sand, some kind of sand-like substance Time in is it. running out. Right. We need to create the proper sense of urgency. And so after doing a whole bunch of takes, someone realized, well, we've let this hourglass run this whole time. And so now it's take 10 and it's a, the, it would take 40 minutes for the sand to run out of this hourglass. <laughs> and we, we, we've gone through 20 minutes. So now here we are and, and the, the hourglass is only half full. That's yeah. not the, you know, we need it to look mostly empty. We'll fix it in post. No, well, you know, so, but someone eventually said that. But remember first, one of the, the tech guys, one of the crew was like, uh, I don't know. I mean, geez, we're going to have to break for 20 minutes while we stand the thing on the other end and uh, get it to run out. And, and another guy's, no, you idiot, you stand it the other way because then it'll always, and then the last guy was like, no, you idiots, we're going to fix it in post. It doesn't matter. <laughs> um, oh, that's great. But isn't, isn't it interesting, too, that for that, like you say, a, a life-changing event, you know, in this case, you might not have felt like you earned with your performance 
on I that didn't day. turn it with my performance, but no. you learn that that what they're looking for is is a whole different set of things than what you're presenting in a classical audition. And and it's as you just said about that director. The truth of the matter is, is that director's job is much, much larger in scope than worrying about the specific way that his violinist, who's a background character, is holding her bow in his commercial. Now, it'd be nice if the world gave all the attention it could to those sorts of things, but his real objective in this situation is to sell Hondas. And, and how I looked in that commercial, other than... My physical presence, which was just magnificent, if you ask of me. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, other than that, it really doesn't have much to do with selling Hondas beyond the way I looked when they booked me. But in the future, you know, there there might be that base commercial that's going to sell. You have no notion what's going what's gonna to work in your favor or against it. Well, you know? so what would be, if you had one takeaway from, from that whole experience or, or perhaps even from that and the other commercial experience that didn't result in, in getting on camera... One takeaway from those that might apply to future sure. bookings. You know, it's it's in classical music, there is this understanding that like since the time that you begin, that the input that you put in the practice room or on the competition circuit or or in the lessons, you know, the input into honing will translate into winning eventually. And so you are you you develop this idea in your mind of direct correlation um, between effort expended and rewards won. This was a lesson in going ahead and giving it your best shot and doing your best and then giving up the results of what are about to happen, you know, however you want to say that, you know, giving it up to the to the universe or to God or whatever. You put out your best and you walk away from the situation. And and it was so much clearer in this instance where I hadn't tied up my ego and my ideas about music and my future and my education all of these things are tied up over on the classical side of things so on this on this performance side of things in another area of hollywood it was so much easier to see how many of those variables were outside of my control what if they needed a shorter bass player that day what if they needed a red-haired bass player because of something these are all things i have no control over no understanding of and all i can do is prepare give my best and walk away and i feel like that's an extremely important audition uh, audition lesson that i've needed to learn for the classical that i can apply to the classical side of things too at a certain moment it's time to take that preparation give it give your output to the world and walk away from the situation and and i definitely learned that from these you know how am i supposed to know some guy's a brother-in-law that's been double booked and and can hold a base it's going to be right. it's out of my control so i really easy to see how out of my control it was in this instance when it's been harder for me to do that on the classical side of things in auditions absolutely it, it's so tough we we really the the word deserve whether we say it or not it, it's always in the back of our minds in the back of my mind at least sure And if that's one takeaway, is uh, another takeaway maybe that you want to be, you want to be the person with the control. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that's you know you, so much of what you do now, not just playing in orchestras, but you're creating and making decisions. And I got to Los Angeles, and my sister was finishing school, and was somehow connected with a new production genius that she was going to school with. The the guy was the world champion guitar hero 
player, the video game. That's one of my favorite South Park episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure that while they were writing that episode, they'd seen videos of Freddie Wong playing Guitar Hero. And Freddie Wong was a director. He was in film school at USC, but he was also this world champion on Guitar Hero. So he knew that people were Googling his name and understood that there was equity in the fact that people were searching for him online, even if it was just to see him play Guitar Hero. And searching for him, what were they mainly finding? They were finding they were finding videos of him at competitions playing Guitar Hero. YouTube. But then, yeah, on YouTube, for sure. And, but then, all of a sudden, he made a video making fun of himself playing Guitar Hero. He rolled up on a, on a Harley Davidson and, like, dropped, you know, got off the thing, and the bike falls, and he grabs the thing, and he shreds the guitar, you know. It was, it was this, this, this really funny video that he did the acting in, and they did all of the VFX work for, for their videos, for their early videos, and all of the planning and directing, and he and his buddies started making YouTube videos because people were searching his name and putting it out. So all of a sudden, it's Freddie Wong starring in a your favorite action scene from your favorite video game. And pretty soon after years of this, they've got six and a half million subscribers to their YouTube channel and over a billion views. And my sister was connected to his circle of friends and everyone's dating everyone else is a big a big school mess, but... Not at all like classical music. Oh, geez, Louise. That's a whole nother episode for you. Oh, the incestuous nature of classical music is... Is brutal. Stand partners for life. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyway, he gave my little sister a job fetching coffee on one of their web series. They they decided to do a web series called Video Game High School. And when they started early production, they gave her a few lines and had her working around the set. And years later, she worked her way from the set all the way up through the business side of things and is a managing director of the whole company. But their company called Rocket Jump Studios is one of the hottest young production companies in Hollywood. And so my connection to classical music and the art that the LA film made brought me here and gave me a platform to start experiencing LA. But at the whole the the whole time that that was going on, my little sister was dipping her toe into the serious side of production in LA. And we've become so interested in the great writing that happens here that then is handed to great uh, casting directors who get all the right pieces to the puzzle. And once that's done, they go in and deal with great art that's that that puts you in the perfect setting for these situations. And then the director comes in and manages all of it and keeps it all on the same page. And so as you see these pieces working together, it it became very clear to me that the musical side, so much of what we do as musicians that works, that that makes you an effective classical player, are the same things that make a great actor effective in what they're doing. Their energy the way they transfer their energy to an audience, the way they deliver their mood. Um, it's the same thing in terms of tone of writing. And it's the same ideas about creating an atmosphere around a production that a, that a set designer does. So that, that it really dawned on me that these are huge opportunities for creativity. And because my sister was connected in certain ways to the city and because we were so interested in movies and these productions and everything else, I've really worked hard since I've been in LA to get involved in as much of those things as I possibly can, all the while while trying to continue playing with these orchestras and enjoying the the amazing art that that keeps in my life. I think it's easy to be cynical, perhaps especially when you live here in LA around Hollywood, cynical about the business and, you know, just to focus on the money and the, the fame. And it's easy to forget that when things work really well, that's not an accident, that there are so many high quality pieces that have 
been fitted together to make that happen. It's so interesting. You know, Nathan, you and I both went to the Marlboro Music Festival. It's a chamber music festival in Vermont, which has some of the most wonderful young players. It's a very small festival. There are plenty of deserving players in classical music that don't attend, but the ones that do are, are all very accomplished and excellent players. And the goal of Marlboro Music Festival is to drop everyone into a, the same place for seven weeks, which is an extremely long time for, for classical musicians to sit in one place uh, when they're not part of a larger group that way. Uh, for seven weeks, you go there and you start working on pieces. And you continue working on those pieces until they're done. And done means ready to perform or until the group decides we've had enough and this isn't working. But what's interesting to me about that is that is that without question, every single one of the people invited to that festival are, are fine players. But you get into these situations where you drop four amazing players into a group randomly, and sometimes it's magic, and sometimes it's absolutely not magic. You know, it's... Yeah. And you really, I wasn't any good at predicting. It's not really possible to predict. And I see that happening here in LA quite a bit too, is that you think like when you combine this star with these, uh, you know, it's it's very hard to know what's actually going to come out. And I think that's why you see at the very highest level, you'll see director, big actor combos that that come back to work with one another. Because when you know you really can click with someone, it's worth it's worth investigating further oftentimes. So would you talk about your part in these productions now? What are you doing? And is it is it with Kate, with your sister? Or? Sometimes it's through Kate. Sometimes it's with Kate. What What's neat about a young production company like Rocket Jump is that they are finding their way and are interested in creativity across a wide spectrum. They're shooting shows right now for Hulu. They are... Um, they had a show on Hulu earlier in the year that took viewers through their process of making YouTube shorts. They have a huge variety of output that they're investigating right now. And I think they'll find their way in terms of what works for them and what, what satiates that audience that they'd built and that everyone was hoping will follow them from YouTube over into these, I guess, more traditional types of media, you'd call them. But, you know, we've written pitch ideas for episodes. I had a small part in, in one of their in one of their productions, you know, where I had some lines, I played a character in, in one of the seasons of Video Game High School. I've been part of background shots. I've dressed up in green screen costumes and been ball pit monster that they, you know, they just needed a tall guy to take care of. Um, it's been a wide variety of things, but but it dawned on me a couple of years ago that there must be a way to connect my life in music with these productions. I mean, music is such an amplifier inside a, a movie or a TV show. It it helps. It's that extra thing that takes the set, I think, oftentimes, and really transforms it into a universe. And I think we just even say that it's extra is uh, we know that's not even doing it justice. You've probably seen the the last scene of Star Wars Episode Four, the throne room scene with no music. Yes. There's a video of that on YouTube, and yes. it just looks ridiculous. Yes. Well, that's the truth. But I mean, and I think actually that's interesting you mentioned that because I think John Williams' music does a neat job of giving his director a huge universe in which to explore. And not all scores do that. Some scores are are much more closely tied to the specific action that's happening in moments and or they give a, you know, a, a theme to certain characters. But I think John Williams does a spectacular job of providing a universe. I mean, we recently did a concert at the Hollywood Bowl, right? The LA Phil just accompanied one of the Harry Potter movies uh, for a live screening. So we did the soundtrack and it was just astonishing to, we didn't get to watch the movie as we played the music uh, when we were performing, but you felt like 
the universe of Harry Potter, certainly informed by the books that I've read and the movies that I've seen, but just playing the music, you felt like that whole universe, the, the muggle side and then the wizarding side and, and all of the possibilities that exist inside there exist in his music. And feeling that inspired me to try and throw my hat in the ring of of providing my own musical ideas to some of these things. And so I've started a young music production company here in town that's just getting started called Hazard Audio. Um, and we're doing music for TV shows and and hopefully eventually movies. We've had our first thing on Hulu in December. And these, what I endeavored to do, the way that I thought I could actually access it is by connecting the creative people that I've met in my life in classical music. My education, our education at Curtis was pretty special in that you're meeting some really amazingly talented people at a very young age. And they do turn out to be, or at least so far, they've turned out to be some of the real leaders in classical music as we've grown up together and people have sort of ascended to the height of their gifts and you found out where you sort of fit into the world. These people that we were dealing with are pretty major talents. And I felt like I had been in contact with enough of these who were who would be interested in Hollywood and what it has to offer, um, but who would never take the time specifically to seek it out and make a life sitting there waiting in the 10-year line to get an opportunity to do it. And so I decided what I would do is while I was here playing with the LA Phil, I would get in line and and start trying to meet people through Kate's company and try and connect the music world here in Los Angeles with these monster talents that are around the country. And it's totally possible to do now with the internet and with technology. I have people right now in Columbus, Ohio, and in New York, and in Louisville, Kentucky, and down in Orange County, all working on projects that will be pitched or that will be delivered here in LA um, in the next two weeks. Oh, that's amazing. And I'm guessing that you you wouldn't feel like your classical background, your classical upbringing and all the, the work that you put in that, the specific work, I'm guessing you do not think that that's all been lost. Oh, no! in no way has it been lost. It, right. it stretches your rubber band to expand beyond it. But what I like about it is that it immerses you in the building blocks of all of music. I mean, jazzers have their own language and their own scales, but they're scales that we know about as classical musicians and have and have played and can play. It doesn't mean that I'm as well versed or that I'm fluent in their language, but it is certainly a language that I'm capable of conversing with them about. And what I've found is that 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 classical tradition being steeped in counterpoint and the nuts and bolts of music making allows me to communicate in an effective way here in town and actually allows me to deliver a product oftentimes that's on a very high level we're able to to pinpoint the people that I think would be good for certain projects all around the country, call them and ask them to produce something. They send it my way. I edit with them what's going on and and go between the production company with them and we deliver something um, that's pretty neat oftentimes and that might not be possible otherwise. And I would think too that the the kind of preparation that we do as classical musicians, whether it's for an audition or a performance or whatever, that same kind of organization and preparation looking toward a finished product or a finished performance date with when you say deliver a product it's really the same as delivering a performance i would think it is on some level it isn't on others i mean oftentimes it's an interesting point because i mean essentially a conductor is a director right i mean it's their job to focus everyone and to bring the to bring consensus to a group sure and so on some level, yeah, I, I guess delivering that product to the director's wishes is the same as delivering a performance to the conductor's wishes. So you, you've got 
some control. You you have creative control, but not ultimate control. It's very limited creative control. <laughs> but I've always thought that in, in all instances of art in life, the way to gain more creative control is to deliver within the confines that you're asked on the highest level possible. All of a sudden, John Williams writes the score that John Williams wants to write for his movies. And it's because he's proven time and time and time again that he is capable of of the burden of understanding what his music needs to be inside a certain film. And so for now, the control is not what I hope it will be later, but it's still really wonderful to have a prompt and to have some, you know, to, to have some direction in terms of where something has to go. It's, it's actually focusing in some way. Well, sure. And then some of the greatest pieces have been commissioned, you know, absolutely write me this kind of a piece and it, it could have been just a, a moneymaker I mean, sure. we're talking, yeah, and any time in the last several hundred years. Yes, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thing. I mean, in the past week, it, let's let's say in the past two weeks, okay, in the past two weeks, I performed chamber music as part of a quintet accompanying Sarah Chang in the Piazzolla Four Seasons. I performed a double bass and violin concerto with piano at a at a fundraiser for a wonderful music festival in the Olympic Mountains. I then went to Ohio, wrote a 90s rock song at a studio in Ohio with a with a buddy who owns the studio there that had to be this angsty like nasty 90s rock song with a big soaring a big soaring uh, chorus, you know. You played me uh, some of that's fantastic. Oh, he, Nathan couldn't even look me in the eye while he was while he was <laughs> listening to it. He was laughing so hard. But it but it nailed the pitch that we needed to that we needed to put it in there for. So we sent that out. We had 2 days to prepare, write a song, prepare it perform it, get it out. We're talking about electric guitar, acoustic guitar, electric bass, singing, all of that done by me and one other guy. Then I came home and I've got three songs that we're delivering to an animation company. One is in a gospel style, one is in a funk style, and one is in a classical style, like a chorale. So we've been recording those this week and performing with the LA Phil. Uh, we did Copeland 3 last night and and the Wynton Marsalis Violin Concerto. And so it's it's provided a variety in my music making that really keeps me on my toes, keeps my noodle stretched, keeps me feeling like I'm not tethered in some way that I shouldn't be. The opportunity to be creative is really all I think we're searching for inside this life as a musician anyway. Um, to have some voice and to have some say in whatever message we're putting out is the is the ultimate goal. And so I've I've had lots of fun trying to make the spectrum as wide as possible. Okay. So to bring this back to orchestra, since we spend so much time here at Stand Partners for Life talking about the symphony and talking about Akiko and my jobs during the week, what have you noticed playing with so many different orchestras? You know, there's an old line that orchestral players say, every orchestra has the same people in it, just with different faces. That's absolutely total baloney. Yeah, I, I don't believe that at all. I do believe that once again, it's it's sort of the quest... You know, it's helped me understand what we talked about earlier about auditions, that that auditions in their own way are a focusing agent as well. That that you go, you put your thing out there, you see what comes back to you in terms of success. But the truth of the matter is, is that each of these orchestras is so different that the word deserving really doesn't necessarily apply. It's tricky to be speaking about these magnificent institutions and try to boil them down to short blurbs. So I hope that if anybody from any of these groups is listening that they won't hold it against me. But but it's it's very interesting. You know, I remember playing with the Cleveland Orchestra and feeling like it's a it's a Ferrari. It's a tight orchestra that that, you know, whose success seemed to me 
to ride upon how together and how facile it was. It can change directions quickly, and the quality and brilliance of the of the playing is on an extraordinarily high level. And their softs were amazing inside their amazing hall, and you just felt like you were in a little a little sports car that handled like a dream. And I played with them recently after being on tour with the Philadelphia Orchestra that I that I envision as a big rumbling Mack truck. You know, I mean, it is, <laughs> it's an aircraft carrier. Now, I think Chicago was once called the Mack truck of orchestras. Was it really? By, by a European reviewer back in the Schulte years. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And I mean that in the best way possible. I mean, there is a momentum that the Philadelphia Orchestra gains and and this dark, rich sound that their their basic string sound sort of lends to the group. And then you put their magnificent wind principles on top of this, like this bed that the strings have have made for everyone and it's it's a tremendous experience and it doesn't seem to me to be based on the same level of tightness as a group you know their success is in their expansive music making and in the amount of time that you have to turn a phrase with them and that that I love the feeling of playing that way it's it's sort of I think that's probably because Curtis is in Philadelphia and it's where I learned my philosophy of bass playing but it always feels sort of like home to play with them and Chicago I remember we were playing pictures at an exhibition and we got to this transition where I felt like normally the basses have a pretty big say in the way that time will be taken and I remember feeling the brass like grab hold of the moment uh-huh. and run me over like steamer it was like no <laughs> take your hands off the steering wheel Nate we won't be needing you for this and it was awesome it was so cool to feel the assertive nature of of the brass in that moment there in Chicago and and to feel what everybody's always talking about when they talk about the history of the Chicago Symphony and that and their brass tradition. And you know, and again, each of these orchestras you're sitting there playing and you're figuring out how it's work uh how it works, but you're convinced the entire time that they're all magnificent orchestras that have figured out different ways to be effective. Right. Because because while those groups are all amazing the LA Philharmonic is a pretty neat place to play too. The hall is is wonderful, and then the summer venue is a breath of fresh air compared to what summer venues, particularly out in the East Coast, can be. It's it's really a neat experience, and I love playing in the LA Philharmonic. I love playing newer music and music, um, rhythmic music. There's like a there's like a solidity when there's lots of moving parts that the LA Phil brings to that type of music that I really enjoy playing in. And it's I feel like I can play hard and heavy in the LA Phil and and really give a lot, and and that it's well received there. So it's a lot of fun to play um, to play here too. Well, they and the LA Phil takes a lot of chances with the programming. It and does, and it and it's clear while you're playing with them that the group is well capable of of handling those opportunities that are a little outside of the box and not just comfortable, but are actually going to deliver some neat experiences that you wouldn't get anywhere else in the country. And how much of that comes? You know, there's always an interaction between a conductor, a soloist, the orchestra, the hall, and then the the planners, the administrative staff who who put the programs in the and it's all tied together. in. And and you know the Cleveland Orchestra is playing in Severance Hall, which once you're playing at a certain level, giving more and playing louder and harder 
doesn't gain you anything in that hall. That hall is magnificent. It's such a beautiful place to play. And so you feel like you can whisper in it and it's going to come across beautifully and you can just speak loudly and fully and that's all you need from your, from your top end. And the hall will mix everything and take care of it together. So all of a sudden you're looking for a different type of player than the Philadelphia Orchestra was looking at when they were playing in the wet blanket that was the Academy of Music. <laughs> oh, they are. I mean, you speak to them about, about their experience in there and they just said, well, we knew that once you got away from the stage, you couldn't hear anything. And so they're laying on their instruments. The, the, the string players are up near the bridge with flat hair. You know, they're doing controlling all the variables that they can control to to make their sound thicker, richer, larger, and get it out into the hall. And so all of a sudden, they're looking for a slightly different type of player than the one that Cleveland is. And these conductors, whose job it is to unite the sound and make these decisions and point the orchestra in a certain direction, it's their job to understand all these variables and to have a vision for the future. So to go back to what we talked about, about these auditions not necessarily specifically being about necessarily deserving, there's this element that it's like, if the Philadelphia Orchestra is cherry pie and the Cleveland Orchestra is apple pie, you go out there and you do your best and, and you know, if you're not apple pie and they need apple pie, you're not going to get the job that day. Right. And it's not your job to diagnose who you are exactly or to worry about that beyond a certain point. They're all wonderful institutions. I think the system will help you figure out where home is. And you want to adjust your playing and your ideas to, to where you'll be as successful as possible, knowing what you can know about these groups. But most of the time, it's just your job to do your best and put it out there and see where you land. Right. Uh, your, your playing is going to be some version of you. And, and that can and will change over the years. But, you know, I, I know we've both always felt it was important to bring quality. That's all you can do beyond a, beyond a certain measure. I mean, that's the, the word deserving is tricky because I don't think it's really possible to win one of these auditions without being deserving. Um, sure. But all you can do is push your level up to as high a place as you possibly can before that day comes and put it out there and try to walk away unfazed by either the positive result that came or the negative result that came. And of course, human nature limits us in, in the way that we react in these situations. But but ideally, especially after dealing with all this stuff in Hollywood, ideally what I'd like to do is prepare because I know what my best is and I know I need to give my best. It's part of my job as an artist. Lay it out there when it's time to lay it out there without worrying about what anybody thinks and then walk away from the situation satisfied that I did my best and go about my business. Mm-hmm. Even if they hire the conductor's brother or the Damn director's it. brother. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been wonderful having you here for this conversation. Uh, Nate Farrington with a remarkably diverse musical and creative life here in L.A. Uh, L.A. for the time being anyway. Sounds like you've uh, really made a home here, though. Oh, who knows You know what life will bring, but, but L.A. is a wonderful city and... I'm very pleased to be here making music with the LA Phil and and looking around the creative landscape. Yeah, it's a great place to be. And so for Akiko as well, my stand partner for life, I'll say farewell. And uh, we'll put all the links to Nate's production company and and the, the various endeavors that we've talked about today. We'll put those in the show notes. And I do hope you'll visit natesviolin.com as well. Take a look at what I've been writing about Violin-centric, of course, but you'll also get my thoughts on other aspects of musical life and the symphony. And come back and uh, give us a look at iTunes. Give us a rating, if you would. Leave some comments about how you're enjoying the show. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about in the future. So, Nate, thanks for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. All right, and I'll sign off. Bye.